Well, good morning. Welcome to my closet. For me, closets are places to store my office supplies, miscellaneous stuff, camera gear, guitar strings, clothes. I've got um, a five-pound medicine ball for my back, uh, luggage, storage, and my closet is a place for memories. Here I've got pictures like some function with my dad going back to when he was in his uh, early mid-30s. People obviously dressed different then. My mom with her uh, little brother. Uh, this would have been taken in about 1932. Um, and even pictures uh, that my dad took of me when I was a little boy. Uh, closets are places for memories. Years ago there was a little pamphlet that was written called My Heart Christ Home in which the narrative of the pamphlet is is that welcoming Jesus into our lives is like giving him entry into every area of our home and as this brochure, this pamphlet goes on to tell its story, the person uh, won't let Jesus into one little part of their home and that's their closet uh, because closets are not just a place to store things like my closet but it's also a place of shame. Uh, years ago when I was a little boy I broke a vase that my grandmother had given to my mom and the minute that thing hit the ground I knew that that thing was irreplaceable. It was gone. It was shattered. And I felt so ashamed that I ran up to my room and I hid myself in my closet. And my mom was saw the mess on the floor and then she yelled my name and it wasn't yelled with a lot of affection at that point, but um, I didn't answer. And she's looking all over the house and she finally opens the closet door and said, well, there you are. And I, to this day, I remember how uncovered and afraid I was because I was so ashamed for what I had done. This morning we're going to look at a passage in John's Gospel, chapter 8, uh, that deals with shame. Now listen, this passage is kind of interesting because uh, it has brackets in most of our Bibles because the earliest manuscripts of John uh, do not have this story. And so without taking a lot of time here to go into why we have it, where we have it. I am going to post some notes uh, that you can read if you're interested in more of the background of the actual text uh, that we have. Uh, but this morning I want us to hear this narrative. Uh, it's an accurate story, presentation of an encounter with Jesus, uh, but it's an encounter that deals with shame. So let's have a listen uh, to John's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. And each one departed to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came to the temple courts again. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The experts in the law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught committing adultery. They made her stand in front of them and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. In the law, 
Moses commanded us to stone to death such women. What then do you say? Now they were asking this in an attempt to trap him, so that they could bring charges against him. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in asking him, he stood up straight and replied, Whoever among you is guiltless may be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he bent over again and wrote on the ground. Now when they heard this, they began to drift away one at a time, starting with the older ones, until Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up straight and said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She replied, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Now this is powerful storytelling. Uh, just, just think about Jesus. He starts off sitting down, and then he's asked this question by the, the Jewish leadership that's trying to entrap him, and they keep pushing him. So then he stands up, and as he stands up, he addresses them, looking at them eye to eye. And then as they begin to press him more and uh, ask him about the law, uh, he sits down in almost indifference, ignoring the question, writing in the sand. Don't we all wish we knew what he was writing in the sand? Uh, but then he um, stands up to address them again. And then after they all leave, from the oldest to the youngest, which I find an interesting insight because I think most of us, as we grow older, we are more in touch with our sin and shortcomings. And I think, at least for me, when I was younger, I was more deluded that my sins were not as deep or as frequent as I realize they are now. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me that there's this procession of rock dropping uh, from the oldest to youngest as they leave so that it's only Jesus and this woman who are now standing together. And so they, uh, he interacts with her. So listen, listen to this passage again. Uh, take note of, the, of Jesus, his sitting, his standing, his bending over, his writing, his standing again. Uh, what's the tone of the voice of the leaders that come to try and entrap Jesus? Think about the woman who was caught and shamed publicly for her behavior. And then how do you hear Jesus in his voice as he addresses her with affection, with the same word that he addressed his mom in chapter 2, woman? It's not an abrupt word. It's, it's, a, it's a kind word. Uh, how do you hear his voice? And then we'll come back and make some observations. And each one departed to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came to the temple courts again. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The experts in the law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught committing adultery. They made her stand in front of them and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone to death such women. What then do you say? Now they were asking this in an attempt to trap him, so that they could bring charges against him. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger.
when they persisted in asking him, he stood up straight and replied, Whoever among you is guiltless may be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he bent over again and wrote on the ground. Now when they heard this, they began to drift away one at a time, starting with the older ones, until Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up straight and said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She replied, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Well, as we think about this narrative, uh, I want us to, to, to think about a couple of things. First is that this woman was being used. At the end of the day, they really didn't care about the sin that she had committed. They cared about the opportunity that it gave them to confront and try and ensnare Jesus. Um, the, the second thing uh, that I, I want to highlight this morning is, is that she was publicly and unjustly shamed. Yes, she had sinned. Yes, she was caught in the act. But the scriptures say that both the man and the woman are guilty. But where's the man? The man isn't here. They don't care about the man because at the end of the day, they don't care about what she's done. But Jesus cares about what she's done. Because she is standing before him, humiliated and shamed, because these leaders have weaponized the scriptures to treat her as a thing rather than a person created in the image of God. And so uh, they, they confront Jesus with her. Shame is a powerful crippling force. As I was thinking about it this week, I found myself thinking about my own experiences of shame. And as I did so, I wrote down uh, this definition of shame for me. That shame is the painful awareness of humiliation that fractures our wholeness, disgraces our dignity, corrodes our self-esteem, colors our closest relationships with foreboding and dread, and blinds us to anything noble, beautiful, and life-giving about ourselves. You know, as we go to the store during these days, we see everybody in masks. And the other day when I was at the store and I was putting on my mask and covering my face, I, I thought to myself, you know, the only difference is I'm wearing a cloth mask. But in fact, I've always worn masks. We've, everyone has always worn masks. Uh, we have worn masks uh, of a happy face, of a, of a deflecting word, um, how are you? I'm fine when we're not fine uh, because uh, everybody has these experiences, these memories that shame us and we wear masks to cover it up. In this case, this woman didn't have that option because she had her mask of her identity, her dignity uh, ripped off as she was caught in the act of adultery. So how do we deal with shame? Uh, Jesus looks her in the eye and he says to her, uh, Woman, who is left to condemn you? Go and sin no more. So he recognizes that there's sin and he expects her to address it. But he 
he tells her that in a context that is shame-free. So how do we deal with shame? Well, for the last several months, I've been blessed to welcome a new friend into my life. Uh, her name is Beth Baroni. Uh, affectionately, we call her Bethy. Uh, but uh, she is a gifted, insightful counselor who God has used to share Jesus uh, with people all over the world, um, heads of world banks, ambassadors, and she has some very keen insights on how God has made us and how we deal with shame. And so earlier this week, uh, I called her and asked her if we could have a conversation that I would record in which we just kind of dialogue about shame and the freedom that God gives us from it. So let me invite you to listen in to eavesdrop on our conversation together. Well, Bethy, thank you so much um, for joining me this morning. One of the highlights for me in working with uh, our district has been the opportunity to get to know you and, and to um, have you be in my new circle of friends. And, and then selfishly beyond the friendship is what I've learned um, from you. And so um, thanks for being with us. And I'm wondering if we could just have a brief conversation this morning about how do we um, address our shame uh, in relationship uh, to Christ? Well, shame is a real, real, real hindrance to recovery. When you're ashamed of something, you can't disclose it. You can't admit to it. And um, there's a sense of worthlessness attached to it that makes it impossible for you to rise up above it. So I think that's why uh, Jesus very clearly says there is now therefore no condemnation to those that are connected to God in grace. So it isn't that areas of failure or uh, sin are approved of or, you know, jumped over lightly. But God doesn't look at sin and attack the sin. He looks at why we're falling apart, why we're failing. And that's what he's trying to get to. So shame is connected to that why on the inside. So I'm a bad person. That's why. And as long as you feel like you're a bad person, you're not valuable. And if you're not valuable, then why waste time on me? It is a horrible cycle that robs you of a healthy view of your identity and your value. How did you first kind of discover uh, the grace of Jesus to address our shame? Well, uh, that was really uh, in the beginning. I don't know uh, how many people that are hearing this know my testimony, the Short version is I was crazy once and now I'm better. But the craziness was very severe. And it came from a lot of abuse. Uh, when I was little, I was raped over and over to the point that I can't have kids today. They did so much damage. And so I came up very um, twisted and my self-esteem was gone. So by the time I was 14, I was in a mental institution and I tried to kill a couple people. So they needed to keep me locked up. Jesus miraculously met me in the middle, introduced me to the Trinity. And um, the first thing that they did was deal with shame. That's the first thing they did. So I started reading in Genesis chapter 1. I didn't know to go to John 3.16 and discover I was a bad person. I already struggled with being a bad person, so he ignored that verse and brought me to the beginning and basically showed me that that I was designed to live in a state of harmony with him. God said, let us make man in our image and likeness. 
to be created in God's image is to have a body, soul, and spirit, and likeness is to function in a state of unity or harmony. In fact, I think that's what the glory of God is. That's the, the painting behind me as they dance. There's the glory of God. We were designed to glorify God, to live in that state of glorification with him. So shame keeps us out of that circle. So I never felt like God was saying, you're a bad person, so I need to clean you up so I can be friends with you. But rather, I love you and I want to be your friend and you're hurting, so I want to free you so you can be friends with me. And, and so I very quickly <clears throat> felt that knowing God and relating to God meant I'm not a bad person. It meant I'm a good person trapped. And I've walked with him through being a multiple personality and a schizophrenic. I walked my way to freedom through the text and holding his hand. It took, it took a while, but I'm free. And the freedom is because there's grace in my life. You can't appropriate grace when you are ashamed because you feel like you're not worth the grace. So I confess I have a love-hate relationship with Christian counseling because sometimes it's nothing more than secular advice with a few scriptures thrown on it. Um, and so it's neither skilled uh, nor sensitive. Um, but sometimes... Uh, as a pastor, I've watched people go through counseling for years and never be set free from this fundamental experience of shame uh, that condemns and incarcerates uh, their soul and their heart. Um, but God delivered you, and and he, and he delivered you from that shame into a place of grace uh, that's life-giving. Um, how, how, how does a person walk with Jesus through shame into grace? Well, I think that the key there is a person needs three things to healthfully grow. Number one, they need an intimate relationship with God. Okay. And when I say God, I mean the Trinity. The Father and the Holy Spirit have their part in our deliverance. Um, they need faithful friends. These are people that don't judge them and don't reject them. They don't contone bad behavior, but they don't attack the person with their failures, but they stay faithful. And then finally, the right information. Um, the right information is really understanding what God looks like. I think a lot of people struggle in relating intimately with God because they don't have a correct snapshot of him. They're expecting something different, so they're looking for something different. So he can be standing right in front of them and they can't see him because he's kind and he's good. Now, you know, often I think that people see the Father as God. In fact, they refer to it always that way. They'll say Jesus and, and well, and God. Jesus is God. I know, but God. So and it's got attached to it a kind of an authority of, I'm a little disappointed in you, so I sent my son to get you to straighten out. And so people kind of hide behind Jesus from God, the Father. And so as people have an intimate relationship with the Trinity, they discover their own identity then. Our identity, if it is not placed in knowing God and Him knowing us, and Him knowing us is the issue, Mark. Him knowing us reveals to us who we are. So I know in part, I see in part, but God sees fully. 
And so your identity is, your true identity is found when you see yourself through God seeing you. The world gives you a skewed view. It's either pride-based, they treat you like a God, or they're shame-based, that you're a moron. But, you know, one of my most favorite phrases I use all around the world is something you taught me, which is uh, humans were never designed to be worshipped. So when we get our identity in the wrong place, we fall in the side of shame or pride. Both of those separate you from God. So our identity and our value must be established in God. So that intimate relationship is hindered because if you think God is a lawgiver, you think he's Santa Claus, you think he's a lot of things he's not, then you don't see him for who he is. So what I find is that today people need more help in identifying God so they can hear him. I think that in the body of Christ, we would do a real service to the community and to the people in the churches if we would help them hear God and see God for who he is. Because is God the one that does a healing? The friends just hold your hand and stay with you through it. The right information should be describing what God looks like. That's what I've discovered anyway. Now, um, one last thing I'll say about that is God will pursue us to the end. And when you get shame and, and you know, the sense of um, I'm nothing dealt with, that mentality that rises up inside. And one, one of the things that God showed me was um, if, if I realized how much he knew me because he had created me, I could learn to know myself. But I was uh, viewing myself through what everybody taught me. So I'm being raped at two and three years old. What do you think I got taught? So my view of myself was very, very damaged. And most people today, Mark, live in a performance method. I've got to perform for acceptance. If you don't perform, you're rejected. You don't perform in your marriage, you're divorced. You don't perform at work, you're fired. You don't perform. So we live even the kids going through, you know, the, the, the problems at school come down to as I'm performing for acceptance. Humans don't have a choice. They need to love and to be loved because that's how, that's how we're created. Bethy, I know that you work with a lot of people that the church doesn't reach. You have worked with um, world leaders, um, people who run companies and international banks and things. And what is it about this grace that attracts people to you that gives you an entry level that the church doesn't conventionally have with these women and men? I think because of the way I came up with God was I learned right the first one of the first lessons I learned was not to be ashamed wasn't even in my vocabulary therefore I wasn't afraid to be vulnerable and as I grew where I landed at and it may sound arrogant to some people but if, if you don't like me, Mark, and God does, who's wrong? So I really, you know, love people, but I really don't deal with any problem of how they feel about me. And I think that confidence is what everybody's starving for. It's really the woman at the well. You know, Jesus, you know, been married five times. You're living with a guy now. And when he was done with his conversation with her, she ran back and, 
got the whole town to come out and meet Jesus. But what was her method of evangelism? Come meet the man that can tell me everything I've ever done. That would be like me knocking on doors around and say, hey, come, there's a guy there that can tell you every area of sin in your life. Come on. Who's going to come? But the, everybody came. Then the disciples went into town and brought nobody back. They just filled their bellies. But she brought everybody back. And I believe why she brought them back was they saw something in her that they wanted. And that was that sin in its own way is like a blip on God's screen. What he's really looking for is the disconnection between us and him. That's why we're blipping the screen. And the reason we're disconnected is because we don't see him. And the reason we don't see him is we don't see ourselves in his eyes. It's, it's, it's all connected like dominoes. So I think that the attraction is they know that they're not judged because I haven't met too many people that can catch up to my past. So if he loves me, then, you know, one, one day I'll never forget it. Uh, some, a young kid asked me, so does God love you more now that you're different? I said, you mean for me? So, well, when you tried to kill people, what a statement. And I, I thought for a minute and I kind of checked in. He's, no, he loves me the same. God is love. He just couldn't handle the hurt I was in. So he so loved the world. He sent Jesus to Trinity, said, you're valuable. I'm coming back for you. He's not mad. He's not ashamed. He, in fact, a lot of times people want to pull out in, in Romans chapter 1, you know, that the wrath of God is poured out amongst people. That's not what it says. It's poured out amongst the evil of people, not the people. What is like one prime insight that, that you could say to people, um, you know, in the spirit of God, in the name of Jesus, um, what, is, what do you think is God's word as a starting point of grace um, for these dear ones? I think that, first of all, I would say that the areas of sexual misconduct um, are grievous because of the amount of pain it causes people. And that causes the person doing the harm a lot of shame deep in their soul. And the person getting hurt is also ashamed. It's interesting that one of the most difficult things I had to get over that was that it wasn't my fault. And the two areas that I found people struggle with the most is um, sexual misconduct, whether somebody's being raped, somebody's in pornography, whatever, somebody's cheating on a spouse, um, and um, abortion. And I think that it's because of the damage that it does to relationship, that the amount of destruction is huge. And unfortunately, in Christianity, in seasons past and even today, we tend to try to make rules really strong in order to get people not to do that. So like uh, in some circles, it, you're not allowed to drink alcohol, according to the Bible. But that's not accurate. It's just don't get drunk. And even then, it's not saying, and if you do, you're going to hell. Uh, it's more of a health tip than, than a I'm mad at you tip. So I think because humanity is so... Um, hurt by these kinds of activities that they pour out shame through rules and do it a little bit based on I know God because 
So they make things like divorce to be the unforgivable sin, those kinds of things. And I think that what I would say to people is I would go to God and just quietly put your head down and you're all alone and just say, how do you feel about me knowing what you know about me? And that's the beginning step. I remember when I first started the Bible, like I said, I, I was multiple personality. So that meant I had a lot of people living inside as schizophrenia. So I had a couple living outside. I had voices everywhere. And when I was uh, reading Genesis and it said, and God said, let us, my head came up. I found another multiple. God's a multiple. And I was quite excited because finally somebody that could understand me. And so my first question was, how many are you? And I heard this voice say, we're three. How many are you? And I said, well, I think we're 11. Well, we dance. We're one. And that became my goal, to be one inside. And um, I, my first step was, he said, well, just you need to know how we feel about you. And the first month was him pouring out his view of what I look like. And, um, and he fought through all my lies and all the things that happened. And, but I remember the day that I finally just put my head down. I was weeping because nobody wanted me, including the church. They asked me not to come back because I was so, it's fair. Whenever the pastor did something wrong, I went up and slapped him. You know, I didn't want somebody sitting next to me. I bit him. So they just didn't know what to do with me. But I remember sitting there and thinking, nobody wants me. And I heard a voice say, we want you. And it was the quietest, softest. And I said, why? He said, well, let me tell you what we created when we created you. And he just began to pour out what I was supposed to be. You were born to be a peacemaker. You were born to be, and, and it was all incredibly wonderful, healthy stuff. And um, so I began to see myself through God's eyes. I see what he sees. He knows me. And if I know me the way he knows me, then I'll be free. You overcome the darkness with light. You don't try to control the darkness. Don't try to control the shame. Don't try to control the pride. It won't work. But instead, embrace what is good, what is pure, what is right in God's eyes. And it will shove all that out. That's what I would say. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this morning. As you were talking about rules and how we do rules to prevent sin, I thought of the old joke about why do Baptists um, prohibit adultery? It's because it might lead to dancing. And <laughs> so we, we have rules for everything, right? So anyways, um, thank you so much for joining us. My biggest regret about this morning is one that uh, we don't have more time and two that you don't have the opportunity to meet in people in person, uh, the wonderful community called Faith Community, that it was my joy to pastor uh, for a number of years, and it's my joy for Carol and I to continue to participate in. Maybe someday I'll get over there and get to come and visit. That would be fun. Yeah, it would be. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, Father, thank you so much for Bethy, or thank you for the word, the testimony, uh, the insight that you've given her. Father, I pray that um, as I hear the bells going off in the background because it's her birthday, 
uh, Lord, I pray that, um, Father, you would testify with her, um, that you'd continue to testify of your love for her, and may this next year uh, be a joy-filled uh, dance uh, for her in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me close with a few observations this morning. Um, the first is this. We will never be able to be free from shame if we do not bring our sin and our shame to Jesus Christ. In him there is no condemnation. He recognizes sin. He's not soft on it, hold that thought. Uh, but he does forgive us and free us. As the scriptures say that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. And those who are enjoying that relationship within the righteousness of God, it squeezes out shame. The second thing is, is that Jesus welcomes us where we are, where we are in our sin, where we are in our shame. He welcomes us where we are, but he has no expectation that we're going to remain as we are. He welcomes us where we are, but he expects us to change. That's why he can say to this woman, woman, go and sin no more. You see, when Jesus says that to us, he's dignifying us. He's restoring us to that royal expectation because we were created in the image of God. And as such, we have this agency, we have this capacity to choose the light over the darkness. And so he welcomes us where we are, but he does not expect us to remain as we are. And then finally, I talked about that Jesus is not soft on sin. And that's because in Jesus, compassion and justice are fully united. The fullness of compassion and the beauty of that love and grace and sacrificial redemptive care and the beauty of justice and its truth and its recognition of the, the, the dignity and nobility of every human being. These two are not competitive in Jesus. Um, you don't have to compromise God's definition of justice to express God's compassion for people. Uh, they don't fight in Jesus. They unite in Jesus. And so Jesus is fully and wholly committed to justice. But he's also fully and wholly committed to compassion. And so in this time in which um, we are watching our world apparently fall apart over issues of justice, we have to remember that in God's kingdom, justice and compassion are united, which ensures that everyone can be a winner equally in God's love and, and in his kingdom rule because of the simple fact that compassion and justice are united in Jesus. So dear ones, as we close this morning, uh, we close knowing that the kindness and tenderness of God was incarnate in Jesus. They appeared in Jesus Christ and they are before us this morning. So for any of us who are crippled, who are struggling with shame, uh, we have an opportunity to surrender that to God this morning, that the freedom and life-giving, comforting, liberating, freeing presence of God's mercy 
uh, might embrace us and give us freedom and peace this morning. Well, as usual, Carol and I send you our love and our greetings. We look forward to the day that we can all be gathered in worship uh, together, hug one another, celebrate the friendships and life that God has given us as, as a community of faith. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, continue to reach out to your neighbors. Uh, be kind when you're going to the store. Look for opportunities to bless and encourage others. And uh, let's allow and continue to pray for God's kingdom to come. His will be done on earth right now amidst shelter in place and all the restrictions we are not restricted from being the blessing of jesus in our city today god bless you go in peace